Chapter 18 There's an English song that goes, Reasons to be cheerful. One, two, three. I couldn't remember the rest, or where I'd heard it, or who had sung it. Like all my memories, it was peculiarly shaped, and I had no clue where it might fit in the great million-pieces puzzle I was laboring over. Even so, I must have hobbled a good few hours with those words on my lips, my painfully sore lips, and my right arm trailing like a ball and chain. Reasons to be cheerful. It was the right kind of lyric to be thinking about, so utterly lost and close to extinction. Very relieved to be back in the forest, I stumbled and slid down the slopes, letting gravity do most of the work. Some of the overgrowth was so dense I had to creep long ways around the worst of it. Nevertheless, my progress began to quicken. Each step felt like it might be sprightly as long as I sang those magic words. The going was almost effortless after a while, and the terrain was never too steep that it hurt my knees. Reasons to be cheerful. I would chant the words aloud, if only to drown the scary fantasy I had, that I was packing scoops of sand into a sandcastle to protect it against the onslaughts of a tide I could see rising in every silent moment. Deep in the forest, the temperatures were cooler. That alone made it possible for me to go as far as I did. I continued to sweat in the sweet breezes conveyed around me, light-headed with hunger, singing reasons to be cheerful for a long while to the tune of O Tannenbaum. Through constant repetition, I was able to reduce the line to its core word, cheerful. Cheerful, 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 cheerful. Singing it so often made it even more ludicrous and meaningless. As I went, I held on to different kinds of leaves, touching them for feel, letting go again before they came away in my hand. There were strands of ivy everywhere, that had the feel of plastic cups and coffee dispensers. There was some kind of dark green leaf with a rubbery texture, but smoother than car tires and pleasant to handle. I was most struck, though, by the softness of the ferns. Whenever I stopped to catch my breath, it would be by a clump of ferns. It dawned on me, after doing this a dozen times, that there was more to it than me just having to catch my breath. The truth is, the ferns had a hint of furriness I found stimulating. I would stop specifically to stroke them. I'm afraid, after feeling the ferns once too often, my efforts to be cheerful collapsed and my reasons came tumbling down. I had no idea this would happen. There was no advanced warning. I'd come close to the edge of a clearing and once again decided to catch my breath. I didn't know what lay beyond the bushes, but it seemed exposed and hot there, not a place I wanted to go. I knelt down, slipping the tip of my nose along the spine of a nice big fern, when a bright orange caterpillar squirmed over the edge, just millimeters from my boggling eyes. Without thinking, I moved forward and brought my mouth over it. After the first killer chew, I felt a wrench in my belly. I seemed to be ravenous for live caterpillar salad, which was bitter and awful, and very likely poisonous. Within seconds, I was sobbing into the fern, 
spitting out orange and brown particles, using the fern as a tissue to wipe away my tears. It was self-indulgence at its worst. But that was the only feeling left to have. I'd lost too much, and there was more to come. There was the horror that even if I could remember who I was, it wouldn't make any difference now. It was futile to think of being rescued, because there could be no rescue from this. Once evidently a man about town, I was in rags now, walking through a place my own kind had abandoned. I cried for my culture, still vivid to me in so many ways, but in no way tangible. Even if I could return to it and be myself again, I would never be able to dislodge this tainted experience of a wilderness dragging me back in time, making an animal of me in a matter of days. The idea that in reality this creature is who I am, and none of the other stuff counts for much, had traumatized me. I cried and groaned and crawled along what turned out to be an escarpment overlooking a lake. I was too busy bawling to notice this at first. The taste in my mouth was so foul, I heaved up what remained of the caterpillar, along with the good chocolate juices I was in no position to spare. I lay shuddering and realized I needed to get into the sun to dry the stinking bile off my shirt and tie. My eyes were so bleary, I thought at first the sparkling I could see was an after-effect of having vomited. There were stars in my eyes. I had to rub and rub, singing cheerful, cheerful, more pitifully than ever. When I opened my eyes again, I finally saw that magnificent lake being sparkled into life by the late afternoon sun and held my breath as I grasped the meaning of it. My only thought was to jump. The drop can't have been more than five or six meters. I stood and began to undress, then realized I might as well go in fully clothed. I was so filthy and ruined. I lurched forward and let myself fall feet first over the side. Shortly after my legs penetrated the water, my face smacked into a sheet of glass. I had made the mistake of looking down as I fell. I plunged in deep, letting out bubbles of air with shouts of pain, and a kind of joyful release as well. To hell with the pain, I thought. I came up with a split lip, bleeding into my mouth. It was fantastically cold. My right arm hurt so much I had to laugh and do a left-arm-only breaststroke to keep warm and afloat. There is nothing so civilizing as water to drink and wash in, to submerge yourself and splash in. I dunked my head and came up with a mouthful to spout skywards. I splashed all the crud off my clothes, paying special attention to my tie. There was a nasty brown stain on it that didn't look like it would ever come out. I can't begin to explain how thankful I was with the cold of the lake and the hot of the sun meeting me in the middle. It seemed such a gift. I turned on my back, kick floating towards the far shore, feeling droplets on my face evaporate while I dwelled in this brief voyage of escape from my predicament. The euphoria faded as soon as I stood in the muddy shallows and began to undress. Wading out of the lake, dripping wet and squelching in my shoes, I began to loosen my tie and shirt buttons. There was a rocky verge where I could spread my clothes and sit naked while the sun dried everything. I spent some time slapping flies and mosquitoes, then shifted into calmer moments of reflection where I could probe at the haziness of my life. 
I'd been thinking and speaking to myself in German. Speaking with the boy, Jamie, had made me realize that I had more than just a facility for English. I experimented, trying to make up English sentences, and discovered I was really quite fluent. Not for the first time, I wondered what country I was in. Could it have been Germany? If it was, it had to have been somewhere in the south. I realized it felt more like Austria. I couldn't say why. I found I could recall a face. Strangely, it was a photograph. A small black and white snap of a man in uniform, wearing a peaked cap that shattered his eyes and nose. A deep sense of confusion struck through me as this memory emerged. I buried my face between my knees, shaking my head. This life that was coming to me in dribs and drabs, apparently my life, seemed so vanishingly small and impossible to hold on to. It was like the water dripping through my hands. I might have wallowed on the rocks much longer had it not been so uncomfortable, sitting without any clothes on. The only thing for it was to go back into the water. I was about to do this when something made me look up. The lake and surrounding trees were still, there were no birds calling, the breeze had subsided, leaving the surface of the water glassy again, not even the rustling sound that seemed to accompany me everywhere disturbed this new stillness. I felt I was being watched. It was the same feeling I'd had the day before when I woke up. It came so powerfully the hairs on my neck bristled, a tingling that rolled up and down my back. I was sure someone was out there. I remembered the boy telling me his camp was near a lake. I called out to him in English. Jamie, is that you? Despite my irrational fears piling up, a sense of propriety made me act so that Jamie should not see me naked. I reached for my underwear. I didn't want anyone to see me naked, not Jamie nor anyone else. My underwear weren't quite dry, but I stood and slipped them on, then grabbed my jacket and trousers. I have to say, I grabbed at everything frantically, as if there was very little time to do this. I managed to control the fear, and that was good. Examine the facts, I told myself. There was no obvious reason to run away. The breeze had died down and the birds had gone quiet, but that was all. I forced myself to replace my drying things on the warm stones. I had my underwear on, and that seemed perfectly acceptable. I perched myself on my rock seat, sniffing self-consciously, humming another song. If you go out to the woods today, you're in for a big surprise. It was the kind of song that might have turned into an earworm for the rest of the day had it not been for what happened next. The trouble with the Going to the Woods song is its dire prediction. I discovered I really didn't like surprises. I called out again, Jamie, if that's you, come out. There was a faint echo over the lake. I was sure I saw something glint high in the trees some distance away, then nothing. I swung around. He was crouching behind a thick hedge of brambles just behind me. It was definitely Jamie, with a stick in his hand, more like a whole branch. I stared at him. He had his finger to his lips, indicating that I should say nothing else. With his branch thing, he beckoned me over. He was acting as if we were in danger. I didn't know if I should take him seriously, but decided to give him the benefit of the doubt 
despite still being in my underwear. With my back hunched in a posture of self-defense, I dragged myself to his hiding place. When I got there, he whispered, we should get back to the camp as quickly as possible. If they get the idea we don't have real weapons, they'll open fire and we'll be dead. Chapter 19 The big man had binoculars. Now, he began, you're about to see the moon like you've never seen it before. He held the binoculars low so Jamie could put his eyes to the lenses. Jamie had to arch onto his tiptoes, but he gasped with delight as his eyes adjusted. The moon had crept over the horizon, causing parts of the forest on ridges miles away to be so starkly silhouetted he could pick out details in the tops of the trees. What he was looking at was a huge flat orb falling over the trees. He could see the smudge of the moon's craters, the long lines of impact, and the spread out shadowy areas the man said were called seas, but Jamie already knew that. Why is it so big? he asked. Because it's full. Yes, Jamie said, but why is it so big? The man put his binoculars into a pocket of his coat. They'd come across each other while Jamie was out walking along the ditch of a disused leet. Looking up from the leet, the man had seemed like a giant, standing on the verge, with his green waxed coat draped down to his shins, and old-style hiking boots, and his navy corduroy trousers hitched up with bicycle clips to keep the hems out of the wet grass. He could have been forty, or fifty, or sixty. Jamie had no idea. There was a good deal of loose skin around his neck and below his jaw. He had a mop of sandy gray hair, and a hook nose with a huge droopy moustache, Wild West style. He didn't seem too threatening, Jamie thought. He had bushy eyebrows, and his gray eyes were watery. After thinking about Jamie's question, the man answered in his pronounced way of speaking. It was an accent Jamie couldn't place. You mean it looks bigger, he said, and later, when it's higher up, it looks smaller. Jamie nodded. That's an illusion, the man said. Jamie thought about this. You can't trust what your eyes tell you, the man said. They walked down the slope towards the moon. The man had embarked on a long and bewildering explanation on why the moon seemed closer to the earth when it was close to the horizon. Jamie knew he had to be back for dinner, but couldn't help following and listening. He wanted to find out why you couldn't trust your eyes. The man was talking about an Italian called Ponzo, and some theory of spatial illusion, and how the way train tracks seemed to get narrower with distance were a good illustration of it. Jamie had to jog to keep up, making a mental note to check all of this on Wikipedia. The man was saying, Imagine a couple of boxes. Now a set of train tracks, yes? In your head, you put the first box where the tracks are widest. He stopped and made gestures in the air, drawing the track lines and pointing out where the first box should go. He seemed to like using his hands. When he saw Jamie nodding, concentrating, he went on. The second box, then, goes where the tracks are narrowest. Jamie wasn't getting it anymore. He lost his balance more than once as they drifted on to more sodden, clumpier ground. He realized they were heading away from the village, 
It bothered him in some remote way that he wasn't going home, but he couldn't help following and listening. Now this is important, the man was saying. He'd stopped and was gesturing again. Both boxes are the same size, yes? But because of the train tracks, which don't get narrower at all, but they just look like they do, the box further away looks bigger, doesn't it? Jamie stopped too. I'd have to see it. The man took out a notebook and a sharpened pencil. He drew what he was explaining in the dimming light. Jamie could see there was something in the explanation, but he didn't know what all of this had to do with the size of the moon. The man had a thin, easy chuckle. He pressed on towards a row of megaliths down the valley called the Lost Boys. The people who placed those stones in the ground many thousands of years ago, the man said. They would have looked at the moon and saw things we can never see. The outlook now is a rational one. We prefer to adjust for the intuition that the moon seems bigger near the horizon than it seems higher up in the sky, yes? But so long ago, people knew that the same thing in the sky was alive, with a wisdom beyond its appearances. They feared it. Jamie said, Are you a teacher? The man had a wheeze. Jamie noticed the wheeze between sentences. I suppose I sound like I know things, the man said. He waved towards the peaks of a tor far off to the east and asked, When you look at that landscape, what do you see? Jamie had to get back for dinner. The man patted him on the head. How shall I put it? he wondered aloud. He was walking again, walking away from the village, still trying to explain more things. What it comes down to is this, he called over his shoulder. Whatever you happen to see, what you're looking at is only ever your own knowledge of it. By then it was dusk, and Teresa and Anya were already eating. There was fish and leek pie on the table, with a mashed potato topping Anya was barely picking at. Teresa had a bottle of Chianti open and was about to render it half empty. She was on her third glass and seemed to be swooning rather than eating. We'll give him another five minutes, she said. Anya managed to scoop some more mash onto her fork. She didn't like to see her mother drinking wine again. She inspected her fork for signs of fish before putting it into her mouth. He'll be out playing, she said. It's already dark, Teresa said. He's got night vision or radar or something, you know, Jamie. Teresa tipped her head back for another sip and managed to drain her glass. Five minutes, she said, then I'm going outside to call for him. You can't do that. Why can't I? People will think you're mad. If he doesn't come, I intend to call the police. Yeah, right, Anya slurred the words dismissively. Teresa poured herself a fourth glass and was just about to have a swig when Anya said, You know that guy, Rodney? Mr. Figure to you, what about him? I don't want to go to school with him anymore. What's that supposed to mean? I don't want to go with him. Why not? I just don't. What's he done? Nothing. He must have done something. He's so in your face. What's that supposed to mean? He gives me a headache, I don't know. He's only trying to be friendly. I, for one, Anya, appreciate having a considerate neighbor. Well, I'd rather take the bus, Anya snapped. It was a distraction, and Teresa quickly dismissed it. She'd invited Rodney Figure over for dinner one night soon to thank him for all he'd done. 
This kind of dissension was mean-spirited and typical of Anya. As it was, the wine made her feel giddy and motionless, for now she needed to concentrate on Jamie's absence. You'll have to come up with something better than that, she said, and nearly drained her glass before Anya could properly answer. In fact, all Anya could say was, No one asked me if I wanted to be driven to school with him. She knew it wasn't the most devastating argument as soon as she came out with it. She picked up her fork and used it to separate some fish from the mash. Teresa put her glass down. Right, that's it. She went to get her coat. It was the floodgates opening and Anya closed her eyes. She dropped her fork, leaned back in her seat and said, This is so embarrassing. Teresa left the door open so that light from the kitchen would be cast over the drive. As she walked into the moonlight, it got colder. She had to huddle close into her coat, looking right and left, then right again. There were a few parked cars along the bend of the road as she approached the village. The village street lamp had a fizz of orange mist around it and made a buzzing noise. Teresa could hear someone playing the fruit machine in the pub. Apart from that, there was no sound and the hills were the shapes of sleeping giants over the rooftops and the church. It was difficult to know which way to turn. Whenever Teresa was tipsy, she was more inclined to be superstitious. If I go right, she thought, he'll come the other way. She made to go left and inverted the thought. She decided to go right after all, because that had been her first instinct, and all she had to go on was instinct. Peering into the dark, she allowed herself to think that Anya might have had a point. Jamie may well still be out playing somewhere. He plays so wonderfully on his own, he's probably lost track of time. But it was clammy outdoors, and worse things can happen under a full moon. As she walked to the end of the silent street, all the fuzzy light behind her now, moving again into the colder, unfeeling glare of the moon, Teresa's thoughts turned to some of the other things that might happen to a child. Just to picture it was to be afraid. To put the worst of it from her mind, she wondered if Jamie might have got stuck in a bog. He might have fallen out of a tree and twisted his ankle, or he might have broken his leg. Teresa couldn't help imagining her son shivering and in pain. She was closer to the woods now, only a few yards beyond the last cottage in the village, when she decided to call for him, and never mind what people thought. But she didn't. Instead, she listened carefully, bending her ear to the atmosphere. Her thoughts were plagued by all the worst eventualities. She was beginning to think Jamie might have been hit by a car. He could be dead in the road. She shuddered involuntarily as her mind leapt from this kind of disaster to another kind of disaster she hadn't yet articulated or couldn't bring herself to articulate. The idea that Jamie might have been abducted. She shook herself and shouted, Jamie! The release of tension brought about by shouting pulled into an ever tighter tension as soon as her voice trailed off. Now the silence was agony. Teresa was shouting again before she had breath to, Jamie, where are you? Repeating it, Jamie! The wine she'd drunk was producing a nervous, sickening kind of intoxication. She went blank for a moment, then dizzier than before. From behind, very faintly, there was a call. It could have been Jamie. 
It could have been Anya. Teresa ran back to the bend until she could see into the village and focus on her son standing in the middle of the road, obviously on his way home, no inkling of the scare he'd caused her. A few others had come to the door of the pub to see what was going on. Back in the house, Jamie couldn't be persuaded that he'd done anything wrong. Yes, he was late for dinner and sorry about that, but there was so much to tell about the conversation he'd had with the man he'd met. They talked about all things outer space. Did you know how fast light travels, Jamie said. He didn't wait for an answer. Millions of miles a second. Do you know how long it takes for a photon of light to get from the moon to planet Earth? He snapped his fingers. It's there. That was it. Jamie was on a high. The faster he talked, the more it made sense to him. Jamie, why were you out on the moor? I was out for a walk. And this man. What about him? What did he do to you? He told me stuff about light. It's a thing called a photon made deep in the sun. But listen, it takes a million years for the photon thing to get to the surface of the sun. And when it's out, traveling through space, it's amazing. It's like one stop away on the tube. Jamie made a whizzing pass with his hand. He was too full of discovery to be subdued. Teresa had a hard time getting him to sit in his chair. He hadn't eaten anything and he wouldn't. You could have been killed, she said, or worse. You know why the sky is blue? He can't hear you, Mum, Anya said. It isn't, Jamie blurted. It's black. It's the photons that make us think it's blue. Just saying it thrilled him. He was hardly aware he was copying the same gestures the big man had made. Colors are waves, he suddenly said, making wavy motions with his hands. Teresa banged the table with her fist and grabbed the wine bottle before it tipped over and smashed. It made Jamie jump and withdraw into himself, while Anya looked on with fierce delight. Who told you all this, Jamie? I don't know. He might have been foreign. A foreigner? I don't know. What else did he do? We talked. Did you go anywhere with him? No, just around the hills. All along, Teresa was aware that she could have been handling this differently. It was the pulse of her headache making her lose her judgment. Everything she looked at had a cruel glaze. In a moment, she would go lie down. I'm sorry, she said. She glanced at Anya too, but Anya was already skulking away to her room. Teresa knelt down and put her arms around Jamie's shoulders. I was frightened, she said. That's all. 